Hi everybody, I'm Michael Davis. Welcome to Bone to Pick and we are coming to you today from sunny Los Angeles, California. I could not be more excited to be interviewing our featured artist this month, the virtuosic, inimitable, the great Chuck Finley. Uh, for my money, one of the top 10 best brass players of all time. He does everything at the highest level and it, totally inspiring. Um, I almost think it would be easier to list the artists he hasn't played with than the ones he has. Uh, he's done everything from that super famous Carpenter's Close to You flugelhorn solo. He's played with George Harrison on the concert for Bangladesh. Uh, he was on the Tonight Show band for years and years and years. He's uh, recorded with Frank Sinatra, uh, Steely Dan Toto, Joni Mitchell, The Rolling Stones, Al Jarreau, Elton John, Tina Turner, Miles Davis. That's just to name a few. I'm super honored that he played on a couple of my CDs, the uh, Brass Nation CD, and played an amazing solo on the uh, Trumpets 11 CD. Um, it's just an honor to be able to sit down and talk to him today about his extraordinary life and amazing career. Um, Chuck, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Mike. This is awesome. Really, It's an honor being here. Thank Seriously. you. Uh, it's our honor, absolutely. Um, you know, maybe we can just start right off by talking about, you know, you grew up outside of Cleveland, then going to the Cleveland Institute of Music, and then that leading to your first uh, professional job with Jimmy Dorsey. Maybe we can start off with that. Okay. Um, well, let me go back just a little bit further than that so I could at least Great. explain yeah. to you how that even came about. I was born in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, in a little mill town with a famous flood. Uh, my dad was a saxophone player and also played violin. That was kind of like a common double uh, back then because they'd stroll. They'd do these uh, supper clubs and these, you know, wherever they, they did the concerts. And, and uh, after they'd take the breaks, they would go and stroll and play violin, you know, from around the tables. Anyhow, so I grew up in a musical family there. Uh, my brother is eight years older than me. Uh, started on cornet, and uh, and so I got through that through my father and my brother. There was constantly music all the time. There were jam sessions in the house all the time. So I thought it was just natural and common that every household was like that. Later to find out that that's not the case. But uh, for, so for me, it was just second nature that uh, to pull out a horn and play. Um, so that's how I, I learned to play because um, of the background was music all the time. Uh, we moved from Johnstown to Cleveland because my dad, that was the big move in the big city. It was 200 miles away, and my dad um, worked in the mill in Johnstown, and he went to, when we went to Cleveland, he worked at the Kink Factory as a repairman. Oh. So that was um, a nice, nice gig for my dad, and then for the family, a, a good move as well. So I was raised in, uh, in Maple Heights, which was a suburb of Cleveland. Um, in Cleveland, Cleveland was a swinging town. Um, it was a back, well, actually it was kind of happening when I was there, when I was growing up as well. Uh, Rick Kiefer, I don't know if you know the name Rick Kiefer, the trumpet player played with Maynard's band. Okay, uh, yeah, back yeah, yeah. The three, three Foxes, that, that was uh, Maynard and Rick. And anyhow, Rick had a, a pickup band there, uh, Maynard's, Maynard's Book. So in Cleveland, uh, grew up, uh, Jake Wiggum was the lead trombone player in that band, his uh, four or five years older than me. Mm -hmm. My brother was playing lead in the band. Um, and uh, Bob Lanise was another trumpet player in that band in Cleveland. Gary Barone and Mike Barone, excuse me, they're from Cleveland as well. A lot of a lot of musicians came out of Cleveland. So I was 14 years old. And I'd go in there and I'd sit in with the band at the Union. And it was just wonderful. I mean, it was what a great experience for me at that age. So, I mean, like I mentioned before, it was a constant, that was my life. Not uh, that and playing baseball and uh, and ice skating, you know, that was mm -hmm. my life and swimming. <laughs> but uh, so 
I, um, I studied as well. Trust me, I did. I had to, <laughs> to graduate yet to study, but, but I always relied back on my music. kind of seemed to get me through everything. Uh, and band at school as well. Um, uh, so anyhow, that was my life in Cleveland. I, um, I played uh, in a supper club called Paderewski's in Cleveland. And they were uh, descendants from uh, Ignace Paderewski from, uh, from Poland, uh, a great composer. Uh, and their family had this supper club, and they had a they did a little show, and uh, they had the rhythm section. The son played piano, Jan, uh, Jan Paderewski, and uh, and my my brother was on that gig for a while. They went through trumpet players. They didn't have sash, which was really beautiful because. Normally, all supper clubs had saxophone players and no trumpet, but this place had a, had a trumpet. So it was my brother, Gary Bruin, did it, and then after Gary, then I followed, and I came in. And so that was five nights a week, and it was absolutely wonderful. Um, so I, I um, at the age of 16, my brother was on the Glenn Miller Band, Ray McKinley. So my brother was 22. No, actually, he was on it before that. Um, but... Somewhere around that, 21, 22. Um, so when that band would come through Cleveland, as once again, and their coach, uh, my father and my mom and I would go out to the venue, and I'd sit in. And I was you know, 15 years old, 16, or something like that. And so I was, I was playing, and then at the supper club, I, was, I could drive at 16, so I'd be working five nights at Paderewski's. And whenever jingles or commercials were happening in Cleveland at the time, I'd also do that. So it was really, I couldn't, you know, I knew right then and there that's what I wanted to do for a living. Mm. When I saw my brother buy a new, uh, a new Tip Triumph TR3, I said, wow, geez, you know, he plays a trumpet and he can <laughs> buy a new car. This is unheard of, I guess. <laughs> you know, so I said, well, this is what I want to do. Uh-huh. Um, so anyhow, uh, I graduated, I get a, um, I auditioned for a scholarship in the Institute of Music and I get a full scholarship. I had a full ride. Um, so I went on, um, I, was, I didn't even have to take my final exams in high school. I, um, I showed the dean, I had the opportunity to go on the road for the summer in 1965 when I graduated, when I was 17. And um, the dean of the school's son played trumpet in the band too. So I went to the dean and I showed him the itinerary for the summer that I could go on the road. And, um, and he was uh, completely knocked out. He said, he said, he looked at my grades, he said, you don't have to take your exams. I'll, just, I'll give you an F on every final exam, and you'll still pass. You know, you'll still pass. And since you have a full scholarship, anyhow, it doesn't really matter what your, your grade point average is because you already have it. So that's what happened. I went on the road. And uh, prior to that, though, my, my, uh, the Christmas of 64, my dad died of a heart attack. Mm-hmm. And um, it was right two days after Christmas. So now, I, mind you, I, I uh, go on the road. I have this full scholarship. I wanted to study with Bernie Adelstein, who was the principal of Cleveland. And that was the real reason I wanted to go there. Because I, wanted to, I, really, I had studied uh, before, prior to that, with a gentleman by the name of Harry Herforth. Not Herseff, but Herforth. He a uh, marvelous, marvelous drama player as well. Mm-hmm. So I did study classical, and, and um, which uh, any young trumpet players out there, and period, musicians, period, uh, it's very important. Yeah. To study classical. I mean, I could tell if somebody studied over the phone. I could tell you yeah. if they had studied or not, or if they've been self-taught. It's very important to have that basic foundation. Um, no so that's what I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, I went there um, to study with Bernie, and uh, he was fantastic. Now, the beautiful thing is that we would do uh, commercials together in Cleveland, and Bernie would play third trumpet, and I'd play lead. And there's my teacher who's been playing there. And it was, we had a great, uh, great bond, a great relationship. So I was the only, everybody, all his students at the Cleveland Student of Music were postgraduate students, except me. 
I was a freshman. Uh, so Bernie said to me, he said to me when I went in and walked into his office, when I got off the road, he said, uh, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm here to study with you. He said, uh, no, you're not. I said, yes, I am. I'm here to study with you. That's why I'm here. He says, no, no, you go back on the road. I said, I don't want to. I want to study with you. I, this is very important to me. He says, no, you, you need to go back on the road. So I kept bugging him. He said, okay, you got it. But only if you come to my house and take the lessons with me in my house, not as a school. I said, okay. So my lessons were, I'd drive to his house and take lessons in his basement. And it was just great. You know, it was just fantastic. We'd spend all afternoon together. It was just marvelous. Uh, but now we had to, I had to do, I was working five nights a week at this Paderewski's, and uh, uh, since my dad passed away, I, you know, I, I needed to work. Mm-hmm. And there were three rehearsals I couldn't make at the, at the school, at the Clinton Student Music. Now, mind you, it was a very classically oriented school, totally. There wasn't a jazz musician there except me. Um, I would be practicing in the practice room, and I'd be playing bebop, and the, the dean would open the door and say, Bach? And I just look at him, he'd give me that evil look, you know, and he'd just shut the door on me, you know. And I'd continue. I mean, of course, I played repertoire as well, but I, but I was going to be a jazz player, so I was playing. I was just playing. Um, I had a notice on the bulletin board that said, so friendly, see the dean, see the dean, see the dean. I kept annoying it. And finally, um, I said, I better go see him. So I went and I sat down in the dean's office, and he said, um, Charles, he said, uh, it says here, I found out that you can't make three rehearsals with the orchestra. Now, I knew the repertoire inside and out. I, you know, I didn't need to make these three rehearsals, and I had to work. Mm-hmm. And I told him, I said, I'm sorry, I can't make it. I have to work. And he said, well, if you don't make those rehearsals, you're going to lose your scholarship. So, I mean, that was a beautiful introduction to, like, a classical school. And I said, <laughs> well, you know, I have to tell you. I said, you can take this scholarship and shove it where the sun doesn't shine. I didn't use those words, but <laughs> I did tell him to shove it. And I, um, I went back on the road. Uh, once again, there was an opening. I went back on the Jimmy Dorsey band. Now, uh, now I'm on the road. This is 65, uh, beginning of, it was actually, uh, 66, beginning of 66. So I'm on the road, and I did a short step with that band, and then I uh, came up, right left the road, and I was back in Cleveland again. So I'm in Cleveland, I'm, doing, I'm playing with Lauren B. Band, and Woody Herman's band came through. And we were the opening act for the Woody's band. Well, on the band was Bobby Shue, uh, Bill Chase, and Sal Nesico, that was that band. Right. So um, now I met Bobby, because I knew Bobby, because he was on the Glenn Miller band, I mean the Tommy Dorsey band, the, with, me, uh, with Sam Donahue. So I knew Bobby through my brother once again there, and so they always called me the kid. So um, Shu and, and Sal stayed, and when well, they took their break, and they stayed because he wanted uh, he wanted uh, Sal to hear me. He said, "Sal, you got to listen to this kid play." So we were we were rehearsing, and Hammond B three, real nice, and we, nice little nice little band. And so um, so he just got, we got to hang a little bit there. And also the interesting thing is that Bill, I knew Bobby already, and I just wanted to hang with Bobby. And Bill Chase couldn't understand why I didn't want to hang with him, you know, because <laughs> Bill was the kind of guy that, you know, he was a ladies' man and he portrayed himself that way. And before every gig, everybody's playing along with them doing their thing and having a taste of whatever they're doing. Bill Chase was in front of the mirror, but he shouldn't have wasn't one here <laughs> out of place. That was his thing. Marvelous. Trouble player. Bill played sure. his ass off, you know, just fantastic. But his, he was more concerned about picking up some chick than he was, <laughs> you know, practicing and getting, getting ready for the warming up for the show. So anyhow, so I was, I was hanging with Bobby. And uh, next thing you know, I get a call 
um, from New York, uh, from Bobby. Uh, from, was it, Bobby? it was Bobby, yeah. Bobby asked me to come into New York. They were playing Basic 3 Ds. Wanted to know if I wanted to uh, audition for Buddy's band. I said, absolutely. So I jumped on a plane, flew to New York, went, to, went there, auditioned, played the first set. And then um, uh, the manager of Buddy's band said, I think it was his brother. I'm not quite sure. I think it was back then. And he uh, asked, the told me, says, Chuck, he says, Buddy wants to see you in his dressing room. So I go in the dressing room, Buddy's sitting there in a smoking jacket. He's sitting there and he looks at me and says, Kid, you got the gig. I said, Fantastic, Buddy, wonderful, I love it. He said, But when you play your solos, I want you to play like Sweet Citizen. Now I'm like 18 years old. I said, You know, Buddy, I said, I'll tell you what, I would love to do, do the gig. I said, But I said, If you want Sweet Citizen, get Sweet Citizen. And Buddy just looked at me and said, Kid, you got the gig. <laughs> and, and that goes back to the old school of give me a prick that can play. Right, Because sure. Tommy Dorsey was that way. That was the way it was. And that's why he had great bands all the time. Absolutely. I mean, you get some nice guy and they get along great but can't blow his notes. Um, sorry, it's not going to be as good as if we get somebody that they don't get along with, but he plays his ass off. That band's going to be a better band. You yeah. know, and that's what Buddy, Buddy had. It so seemed, that was my, uh, how I got on it. So it, obviously getting on that band, getting on Buddy's band, seems like that brought you to national prominence. I think you guys did the big swing face record at that time. Right. And it was you and Bobby and... Uh, mm -hmm. What was, I mean, I, I, I know from being on Buddy's band, he loved anybody, of course, at your level he would love, but then somebody who's got a backbone and is going to stick up to him, he really responded to that. So that's, that's amazing that you had that at such an early age. That band seemed at that time to be one of the, the a really special band of his. Like it seemed like in terms of the spotlight in jazz and big band stuff, like that band was really, had, was a cutting edge band with the pie strip charts and all the new stuff that he was doing at that point. What was that like, just getting on that band for you and being a part of that ensemble? I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was just, uh, to join a band like that after playing, like, I wouldn't say a Miles band, but Jimmy Dorsey band. I mean, it was, a, it was a society band, pretty much. You know, I mean, it was great. The band was great, don't get me wrong. Uh, but to join Buddy's band, it was like, uh, wow. This, it was, the, the beautiful thing, it was so fresh. Because when Buddy formed that band, I mean, we had Woody's band, you had Duke's band, you had Basie's band, you had so many bands, you know, Sizenda's band, you had, there were a lot of great bands, but I mean, of course, we're, we're talking about Duke and Basie, those bands, and Woody's band, those three bands, pretty much, and Maynard, yeah. Maynard's band as well. But those bands, you looked at those bands like as being the cutting edge, like you say, bands of, of that, that era. And then when Buddy formed that band and put the, you know, he put that big band together, because he had small bands before that. And when he put that big band together and got all this fresh talent, and uh, the arrangers that you're talking about, Pie Strip and uh, Bob Florence and uh, Alan Ferguson and mm -hmm. people like that, the charts that we played, uh, it was marvelous. Uh, it was just so exciting. And then this, I was right next to Buddy because my chair was right next to Buddy. And he, this ear is not very good, so I'm going to talk into that one because he hurt that one pretty good. Same and, thing for me. I was oh, in gosh. <laughs> the similar trauma. Yeah, it, uh, I, was, I had young ears and boy... It was something, but he, um, <laughs> anyhow, he was, he was wonderful, man. He was absolutely electrifying, you know, to sit next to him. And, and he just, uh, he lit up the stage at all yeah. times. It yeah. didn't matter if he was feeling like shit or whatever or whatever. He just got everybody off their ass. Mm -hmm. He just lit us up, and we had no choice. And it was wonderful. Yeah. And uh, it, was, it was a lot of hard work, but I'll tell you what, it, was, it went fast because... It was like one, two, one after another. Man, he's just like nonstop fire. So you had to, you know, and the, and the good thing is, 
I lived at this place. I remember, I, was, I loved Duke's band. And I'd listen to Duke in Vegas when we were working, and they'd be at the Sands or something, and I'd go hear Duke's band. And they were nice, but they were just totally electrifying and just absolutely fantastic. Most of the time, they were very loose and pitched, you know. And, um, uh, and then you had Basis Band, which was a much cleaner version of that and swung a lot more in a lot of ways, but they were both beautiful in their own way. Mm -hmm. And then you had Woody's band, which was even cleaner and more in tune. And then we had Buddy's band, mm -hmm. which was the cleanest and the most in tune and most electrifying of all four. So it was, it was beautiful. But back in those days in Vegas, you know, one, every hotel had either Deuce band in one hotel, Basie's band in another hotel, Woody's band in another hotel, and Buddy's band in another hotel. I mean, it was just like, it was absolutely fantastic. I yeah. mean, so for me at my early age, I was 19. I couldn't even believe it, what was happening to me, you know. That's so cool. Well, let's talk a little bit about your time in Vegas. I know you spent some time on Johnny Haig's famous relief band. Okay. And uh, what, was, uh, what was that like? And how long were you in actually living in Vegas and working uh, as a professional? Well, I left there? Buddy's band in January 68. The, the band was in Vegas. And at that time, she had already left the band. And, and uh, I wanted to leave. I wanted to stay in Vegas. My brother was living there. She was living there. Uh, no, this is the town to live in, you know, for the musicians. Because, oh, everybody, Herbie Phillips, Carl Fontana. Oh, you name it. It was just full of fantastic musicians lived in Vegas at that time. Mm -hmm. And um, and I wanted to leave. So I told Buddy, I gave Buddy my notice. And then that was a beautiful thing, too. Buddy said to me, he said, said Ken, said, I'll make sure you never work again the rest of your life. That was his line, too. Well, I made more money the first night, I think, than I did on Buddy's band for the whole week. So, so... It was, you know, it was just his attitude. It was fantastic. You know, you kind of have to laugh when he says things like that. A lot of people took it too serious. I just laughed at all that shit inside because I don't think that was a joke, you know. It was gonna, maybe he had me whacked. Maybe then I wouldn't work again, but, but he, well, that wasn't going to happen. So anyhow, so I, I left the band uh, for a show at the Minsky's Follies, and that show in January 68. And back, well, I don't know if it's still that way, but in Nevada you had to earn your, earn your card you had to put in your, your time and join the union. You had to wait six months to get your card to work. That's the way it was. So everybody would, unless they needed you. And in this case, uh, there was an opening in that in the band, and they played nothing but Buddy's charts. Oh. On that, so it was like they needed me. So I left the band and went right to work at Minsky's, at the show at Minsky's Follows. So I did that, and then, um, Jesus, when did I join Johnny Hayes band? I was. I, I, did I do two shows? Maybe I did. Huh. I think, but I, oh, I did an 8 o'clock. Oh, yeah, that was a 10 and a 2. Okay, yeah. That was a 10 o'clock and a 2. It was a lounge, that show, the girly show. And then the 8 o'clock and the midnight show, uh, that was, I was on the relief band. That was Johnny Haig, or Haig Eschel was his, okay. his name, Johnny Haig. His stage name was uh, Johnny Haig. And uh, the greatest thing about that gig was the fact that uh, it, the band was fantastic because we, had a, we played all the dark nights. So every night, we work six nights a week, uh, seven. Every uh, hotel, off night. So every night I go to a different hotel at eight and midnight and play that show. And then at uh, 10 and 2, I'd go back and do Minsky's Follies at the Thunderbird. Must have had the best musicians since you have to... Uh, it was great. Sight reading, uh, everything was It crazy. was great. It was a great band. It really was. Um, there were fantastic musicians in Vegas. And that trumpet section was Louis Valazan. I don't know if you know who he was. I don't. He played with Esquivel and, um, mm. and Tito Puente. Mm. Fantastic. Uh, there was a recording of him playing Fly the Bumblebee up in Double C. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ridiculous. He and Ollie Mitchell. 
the name of the two on, on Tito's band when he recorded it. Oh, okay. But uh, so anyhow, I I was there till May of six of uh, sixty nine. So January sixty eight to May of sixty nine, and Herbie Phillips, who was in the drum section, me and, it was Bobby, myself, and Herbie, and Herbie would say to me every day, "Kid, did you give me notice yet?" Because he knew I wanted to move to L.A. Because mm. I did the whole summer of '67 going to Wayward Goat Show here in L.A. with Buddy's band, and that was Buddy Rich, Buddy Greco, Sarah Vaughn, and George Carlin was a kid comedian. So that I knew I wanted to move here when I when I was here in '67. I met uh, John Adino, Richard Scary, Manny Klein, Jeez, uh, Vince Rose. I met you know Ollie Mitchell was on the band for us for that summer. I knew name and I met everybody here. That I and Pete Condoli, Conte Condoli, Bunny Chillers. I mean, all the people that I analyzed all my life and recorded, Yuan Racy, uh, you know, everybody. I They were here and I met them all, and I said, This is where I want to be. Mm-hmm. But my turn my coming here was the Vegas, leaving Buddy's band in Vegas. That was step, that step to here. So I was there till May of 69. Okay. And then, uh, then Herbert would say, Every day, did you give me a notice? I said, No, not yet. And he kept bugging me. And if it wasn't for him, I'd probably. Still live in Vegas, and I because you get stuck there because that you do the shows, you get that check every week. It's great living, play golf every day, play your horn every night, mm-hmm. you know, great food, all these women all over the world. I mean, it was just everything about it mm-hmm. was great, especially being a young man like I was. Mm-hmm. And uh, but Herbie kept bugging me, bugging me, and finally one day he said, Did you give me a notice? I said, Yes, I did, and that was May of '69. Then wow. I moved here, and um. The rest is history. Well, let me let me let's start on the the LA portion of your of your career, and and this is where it really gets amazing and interesting. Um, a good friend of ours, uh, Dave Trigg, hit me to this last week at our show at Pippin in New York. He said, you know, reminded me that you had played the famous "Close to You" solo for the Carpenters in 1970. And so that was clearly like, you know, soon after you got here. And it became, I mean, it's such an identifiable, it's one of the most famous instrumental uh, pop solos of all time, I would have to say. Um, and people have said, since I've been doing a little homework about it, people have said that it, that kind of created an avalanche of people like, I want that guy. And that, that was the sound. And, and I don't know if that's true, and maybe you can address that, but maybe just tell us a little bit about, you know, getting rolling in the studio scene and then maybe how that solo played an important part of, uh, of launching your, your recording career here in L.A. Okay, that, well, that's very true, Mike. Uh, it was, that solo, was it done at A&M Records at Studio B? And um, when, I, when I came here, when I moved here in 69, um, of course, Ollie, I knew Ollie was doing, Ollie was doing all the record, rock, rock and roll records, all of them. So I was on every date with him. I was doing like three a day. You know, I did that for 20 years. And uh, but it was just incredible, like uh, all the stuff that was being done. I'm talking about all the all the Motown stuff, uh, all the bubblegum stuff you're talking about. But then, then the Carpenters came on the scene, uh, and it was the this brother and sister from Downey, California, and uh, Jack Doherty, who produced them, was a piano player, um, trumpet player. He played actually played in one of Woody's bands, one of the Herds. Hmm. He played fourth trumpet. I never even heard him play trumpet because he just wanted to play piano. But he um, he was working at Northrop um, uh, Aviation, and uh, and was working doing solo piano stuff down in Palm Springs. Well, Herb Albert's A and M Records was going at that time, 1970, was going down, it was going under, and um, so Herb, being well, the way Herb, you have to know him to understand this, but he um, he thinks if 
the studio is 66 degrees, and, and um, uh, fine wine is, is kept in a temperature of 66 degrees. If your studio is 66 degrees, then you make fine music. That's her. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm serious. And that's exactly what he did, too, one time. But so he's looking for some, somebody to make A&M affluent again and have them put them back on the map. And he was down in Palm Springs, and he heard this piano player. And his name was Jack Doherty. And he found out, he, he researched him, found out that he worked as uh, Northrop Aviation, I think it was Northrop, and found out that he was there for three years, and after three years that he's been there, he just put, they, they just um, thrived behind Jack. And they hated him there for the fact that this young man, they were, he was offered a position, a uh, wonderful position there at the aviation uh, place, uh, over people that had much, much more seniority over him. But, he, but since he was the one, now Herb saw this, and saw him play piano, so he knew he was a musician. He asked him if he wanted to be a, um, a producer at A&M Records. Because he thought, well, okay, this guy will be there. Well, he goes to A&M, and the first act that he has is the Carpenters. Uh, Joe Osborne, the bass player, uh, was, brought this tape to Herb. And Herb listened to it, and it was completely different than everything was being done at A&M Records. Mm -hmm. I mean, the hippest thing was happening with Joni Mitchell, but I mean, as far as anything vocally like that, I mean, it was it was really rock and roll. Mm -hmm. The days of real rock and roll, not uh, Karen Carpenter mm -hmm. or Richard. And uh, so Herb had this tape and gave it to Jack, who he just hired, and said, here, let's produce them. Well, he takes the Carpenters, he brings them in, and Jack very, uh, was, um, his, uh, he liked, um, oh, gosh, it was the, uh, he was just—he was really into into, into orchestrated things, and, and that was his whole thing. Hmm. And he—he uh, uh, he took them, and um, everybody looked at him as a real bubblegum act. You know, sure. there's no way in the world this is going to work. Well, Jack put that together. He hired you know the greatest musicians he could in this town. He got them to record with it, and we put on the brass. And it was me and Ollie Mitchell once again, Ollie and Buddy Childers, the three of us. So we were recording at A&M, and Buddy originally played. The solo, Buddy Childers. Now, I knew Jack from doing some other things with Jack. And after we finished, he had Jack asked me to stay. And then I, and I said, why? Well, he said, well, I, want you, I would like you to put the flute horn solo on this, on this tune, on this tune. So um, I said, well, you know, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to step on anybody's toes. I was a young kid. He said, no, you know, I'd love you to do it. I said, okay, I'll do it. So I did it. And the hardest thing was the dipping the note on the... Well, those, those positions, I mean, you know, especially a flugelhorn, there's no way you can use the third valve, it's second valve, so you can't. So it was really hard to get under that F sharp, E concert, and F sharp. You know, it was very difficult to do. And I've, I only recorded it. I didn't have to do these things live, but I've been told by many, many... Trevor players, they, they sweat before they have to go to that because they got to, because it has to dip into it, you know. I, gotta, I only I did gotta, it I, in two takes or something like that. But I just got to say, I went back and listened to it after, and it's like a harbinger of, of great Chuck Finley because it's there, but it's not, it doesn't beat you over the head with it. It's just like, it's so tasteful, but, and it gives you everything you want, but it's not, it's just, just great. And yeah, it holds up you. so well after all these years. Thank uh, you. Yeah, it was, years. Uh, getting back to what that did. Yes, it did, um, because of that. And then and once again, overnight, 24 hours later, Carpenters were an unbelievable huge success. It was number one. Mm -hmm. And that record label just kind of went back on the map again, I mean, instantly. Hmm. That's where things happened. Also, as far as Carrie and Richard were concerned as well, 
they were some two kids from Downey. All of a sudden, now, like 24 hours later, they're like multimillionaires, and they're like, you know, they were, it was almost too much for them actually. And I think that was a, a reason for Karen's demise. To be honest with you, See, mm. it was just too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was, you know, they were on the road to concerts all over the place, and you know how managers book. They were just too busy. I mean, I'd, I'd see them once in a while at A and M, and I said, Karen, you know, I said they're going to be, you know, taking a little holiday, going to be in town for a while. No, we leave tomorrow morning, you know. And the mm-hmm. private plane. So they were constantly in and out, recording in and out on the road. So it, it was tough. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, um, and A&M Records now, <laughs> they didn't like Jack Doherty at all. Because they, it was like a stab in their back, laughing in their face. That, that, that they, Everybody there, everybody at A&M Records, every writer, everybody there said, there's no way in the world this is going to happen. Jack did it. And Herb, first of all, Herb brings him in, who is this guy. You know, play solo piano down in Palm Springs. Who is this guy? You know, he, and the carpets come in, big hit overnight. A and M's back, and they should have been thrilled that now their job was secure. Of course, but they didn't like the fact that this guy was got all the glory now again too. So it was it was a lot of shit. Interesting uh, that yeah. happened there. But that led for me, and but Ollie Mitchell was the one that got me started. Mm. That helped a mm-hmm. lot, mm-hmm. trust me. But it was more Ollie getting me going in this town, mm. and just and knowing people and records and. But that solo was uh, wonderful. Yeah, awesome. You know, this just kind of jumping ahead a little bit. In 1979, I was a freshman at Eastman School of Music. My mom called me up and said, I've just read this amazing article about this guy named Chuck Finley. I'm going to send it to you because I think you'll like this. Of course, I knew who you were at that point. But I was like, great, mom, send it. So I opened the mail, have it. I read the article. Front page of the Wall Street Journal. There's your image in the newspaper kind of image back then. And it basically talks about, Here's, here's the blueprint of the most successful studio musician you can imagine. I cut the article out like it was the Bible. I mean, I was just so careful to make sure it didn't taped it up on my dorm room wall. It sat there for the whole time I was uh, in that room. And I just, it still amazes me that, that there was that, and it was so great. Like, it just doesn't happen nowadays. So uh, I was wondering if, if you could maybe talk a little bit about that article, but also, obviously, that, that period in time, the late 70s, where the, the, it created that article, that you were doing so much stuff, so maybe just address what it was like in those, in those years for you here in LA. Okay, Mike, well, that's, it was interesting how it happened, actually. I, uh, of course, I was, t- I was telling you, I was doing three record dates a day. I was ridiculous. Either record dates, or I was doing a, some of the Warner Brothers or a film call. I was doing something. I was always doing like three things a day. And uh, I was married to my lovely wife, Celia. Then, and uh, we had a 55 Oldsmobile that we had uh, that I used to drive to work and I loved this car. And uh, there was, I got a call from Max Herman, was the president of the union here, the musicians union here. And Max told me there's this gentleman um, that wants to do an article on you. And uh, I, I, I want to say his name is Ann Stewart, but that wasn't it. I, I can't remember his name. Uh, and so I said, okay, fine. Uh, because he, what he did is he went to the union, the musicians union. And the reason he went there to do this article is because his sister did a commercial, like a, a, some kind of commercial, like I don't know if it was a, uh, for makeup or some kind of commercial. And she didn't even have any speaking lines, but she got residual checks on this. And he couldn't believe that his sister was in this thing and he didn't, under, didn't know anything about this and she was getting residual checks. Hmm. So he went to the Musicians Union and asked Max Herman uh, who, who to do an article on and Max told him me. So this guy wants to, he wants to do an article on me, so he's, I said, well, you have to be with me you know, all the time, so you have to follow me through every session. So now, mind you, I'm, 
he, I'm doing three a day, running from one day to another day to another day. So he's following me. I'm in the holes. And so I have a 9 o'clock in the morning. He's there. Okay, we do the 9 o'clock, 9 to 12. Then I got a, a 2 o'clock. Or, and we go over time, so it's 9, 9 to 1. And I have a 2 o'clock at one of us. from the flying. Now he's, he's flying behind me in his car. And I'm, you know, driving from session to session. I get to one of us. He's at one of us. And the next one, I'm uh, down at Motown at, uh, at 9. And we go to like 3 in the morning. Now I go home, and then uh, next morning I tell him when to be. Next morning I have another 9 o'clock. And he says, oh, I don't have five hours sleep. He's there. So mind you, this happens for one week. Well, by the third day, never forget, we're at Warner Brothers. And then Gary, everybody knows this guy now. They know he's doing this article, he's following me around. We're in, uh, in the little studio of Warner Brothers doing something, and he's in, in the studio, and he's sitting in a chair like this. And, and I told Gary, and Gary Grant was there, I said, Gary, I said, take a look at him. <laughs> out, completely out. He just, he just couldn't have. He tried, but, you know, and we had a little help back then as well, but, you know, a lot of coffee, but it helped. Coffee's you know, a good thing. Coffee got us through all those sessions. It's a big help, yeah. Yeah, yeah but, it was, but that's, that's how that article happened. And because he, you know, just wanted to know about residuals and stuff, and so that, that, was, the, that was it. It was beautiful, actually. Yeah. And I got a call from Johnny Rivers, who I had gone on the road with in 1971. And I hadn't talked to Johnny in like seven years. And Johnny Rivers calls me and says, and he's a real businessman, Johnny Rivers, too. I mean, real business. Very wealthy investment. He's invested wisely. And he called me up and he says, I can't believe it. He says, you made the cover of the Wall Street Journal. He says, I can't make the Wall Street Journal. He said, I don't know any musician that's ever been on the cover of the Wall Street Journal. Well, I said, well, I am, Johnny. I said, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I think the article read something like, musician makes fortune, not fame. I think that's what it said. I'm not sure. Or, yeah, I think that's what it said. And I, well, and back then I was making a lot of money. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was making more than the President of the United States, mm. you know, back then. Uh, it was, I was making over $150,000 in the 70s, early 70s. Mm-hmm. You know, that was a lot that's, of money back then. Money. You know. Sure, absolutely. Don't come anywhere near that these days. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, in comparison, you know. Right. But it's, uh, you know, it was, it was great. And, but everybody was. It wasn't just me. All the musicians were making a lot of money. Mm. We were getting big record checks as well. Mm-hmm. But it, was, it wasn't about the money. It was about the music. Yeah. It was always, there were always three trumpets, always four, three and four trumpets on every date. Yeah. Except for some of the, the rock and roll dates. It was like, I would, we, that's when we started double tracking. With me and Jim Horn mm-hmm. and uh, Slide, Lou McCreary, mm-hmm. you know, or even if it were two troubles with me and me and Ollie, you know, um, it'd be uh, Lou McCreary and Slide Hyde, Dick, uh, it would be Jim Horn and Plas Johnson, mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. like that, you know, and then we'd double track and, and they just loved that. And they didn't care back then, there was so much money for the budget, they could care less. You know, it was, it was just whatever you wanted. Amazing stuff. I had the pleasure of meeting you for the first time in 1983. I was on Buddy's Band. We were in L.A. A friend of mine said, oh, I got an invite to go hear Chuck Finley and Jerry Hay tomorrow. You know, do you want to come along? I was like, absolutely. So we went down, and I can't remember if it was at Ocean Way or what studio it was at, and, and uh, it was for the Manhattan transfer, and it was, that was, I was keenly aware of Jerry Hay and you guys in this section that was existing, and I, this was just fantastic. And we walked in and I got to media, and I have to say, like hearing you guys that day it changed my life as a musician and as a brass player. I'd never heard anything like it, and it feels like I've never heard anything like it since. And it was the most powerful sound 
and at the same time, the most focused and in tune and in time sound as a, from a section that I've ever heard. And for all of you who, who know Chuck's work with Jerry, for me, it's the greatest section of all time. Just the combination of those three trumpets with Bill Reichenbach and Charlie Loper and, and just the sound of the brass and then Jerry's writing and everything that was just a moment in time is amazing. Um, maybe could you just talk a little bit about your relationship with Jerry and then also maybe a couple other members of the section in particular, your relationship with Gary and, and with the great Bill Reichenbach, one of my all-time favorite trombone players. Yeah, and rightfully so. Yeah. Bill is, Bill is brilliant. Um, I met, uh, I knew Gary before Jerry, of course. I, I met, when I was in Buddy's band, I met Gary, he was in the Navy down in San Diego. Mm. And we, we worked, um, we worked, she was on the band myself, this was the summer of 67. And we went down, we worked some club down there in San Diego, and Gary showed up, and he was in his Navy, well, he wasn't in his uniform, but he and his, uh, his wife, uh, his fiance there, or another, and they came in, and he said, I'm a trouble player, my name's Gary Grant, blah, 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 so, we meet Gary, and uh, the first thing that Shu does is we go to the bar. Well, Gary, we're going to buy you a drink. So the first thing we're doing is we're on the break, and, and Gary's knocked out. He can't believe he's listening to Buddy's band. He was just, you know, and I never heard him play yet. And uh, so Shu buys us tequila, shots of tequila. So we're drinking uh, and beer chases, boiler makers. And so now we go up and uh, we go up to play the second set, and Gary told me later on, I found out later, he said, so I couldn't believe it. He says, he said, I could hardly move. And you guys went up and did another set with Buddy's band. He said, it was just, you know, frightening. So that's when I met Gary. So then Gary moved here after he went to North Texas State as well. And that was 67. So I moved here in 69. Gary moved here probably 70. I'm thinking it was out, he was out of the Navy and he went to North Texas prior to that, I think. He did a stint at North Texas. Then it was in the Navy. And then he moved here. And, uh, and uh, he was living in Eagle Rock, and I was living in Silver Lake. And I was, all they had already gotten me in, so I was doing, I was busy as can be. Um, but so busy, I needed subs. And I needed people that I could call and could come in and do, you know, do my, my gig and make sure that it was covered. Mm -hmm. Well, Gary was the guy. I mm -hmm. wanted, you know, Gary was fantastic. And I, uh, but I couldn't, it was, I couldn't reach him because his, <laughs> his brother ran up his phone bill so high that he didn't have a phone. So the only way I could get Gary was to send a messenger to his house. And I mean, think about it, because back in those days, he, you know, you had actual landlines. You had, I mean, you had to pull over the phone booth to call somebody, you know. Uh, and it was, I couldn't get him. I couldn't reach him. So he got an uh, invitation to go to Hawaii from a guy by the name of Harvey Ragsdale, who was the contractor in Hawaii. So Gary went to Hawaii, and he was like, he, Harvey, Harvey sent him out a penthouse. He went out a... And they had, a, they had a little girl, Mary Kay, at the time, and Pat, Patrick, their little boy. So they had two little kids. And um, it was perfect for them, you know, and right at the time. It, obviously, it wasn't timing, it wasn't right for them. So I went over there. But Gary missed us and missed me and missed everybody here in L.A. So I said he would have us come over. He'd have Harvey fly us over for a week and play a show with him. So, so he could <laughs> hang out with us. So I, I, we knew Gary wanted to come back. So anyhow, Gary came back in like 74. But when I was over there, I met Jerry. And all the guys I met, Seawind, I met Jerry, I met Tim Hutchcroft, I met Larry Williams, um, Bob, Bob Williams, and, um, everybody in that band. It was this incredible band. When I heard them live, it did, to this day, I still think it was the finest group that I ever heard. Mm. Uh, I mean, it was they were just phenomenal. Wow. So clean and so tight. And, and Pauline uh, Wilson, Wilson, Bob Wilson, I want uh, Fantastic. Um, and then um, Harvey Mason brought him over to, to produce them too, because he heard them over there. 
Um, so Jerry comes to town too. So I had Gary, and then I had Jerry. Now, Gary was out. Gary came first, and I got Gary working. Now, now I could reach him, and he was doing all kinds of sessions <laughs> with me, and he was getting real busy. And then, um, and uh, then Jerry moves over, and so I was perfect. I needed something. I needed players to that I could call and say, "Please, I can't make it to two o'clock at Motown. Can you do it for me? Can you get over there? Can you do go here? Can you go here? Can you go here?" So I had. I was great. For me, it was fantastic. We needed players, and I needed players that I could, you know, those kind of players, because mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. things I did. I needed some really, really top-notch players that I could count on playing a, a fade for a five-minute fade on high Fs and Gs and not missing a note. Mm-hmm. You know, I needed mm-hmm. something like that. And I, I had Gary, then I had Jerry, so it was wonderful. For me, it was like heaven that I had these guys, and it was it was like this, you know. We, uh, and that's why we play so well together. I mean, our, we think the same, we play the same, we... Uh, it's incredible, and then of course Bill. Bill comes, and here's this young trombone player that's uh, you know brilliant tenor trombone player. He was playing tenor, you know, mm-hmm. and um, fantastic. And then uh, I got him with, uh, with Menza. We had a. It was originally it was me and Don Menza and uh, Yo-Yo Frank Rossellino. That was the sextet we had, and then Yo-Yo's uh, girlfriend Diane told him that he was too good for the group, so he so. <laughs> He left, and I called. I said, "Don, I said, Don, we got to get Bill. He's the best guy for it." So we got Bill in there. So we we did all kinds of gigs as a sextet together, and it was beautiful. So we'd be in the studios all day, and at night, the Dantes we'd be playing with the sextet or wherever Carmelo's all over the place. It was fantastic. Bill was beautiful. So that was my, you know, with those guys, it was, and we've been working together ever since. Yeah, that's amazing. You guys have done so much uh, incredible work together. Let's um, shift gears a little bit. I know. You've, you've worked with him. I'm, I think we're all big and huge Freddie Hubbard fans. Um, and there's a famous video um, of, of you and Gary walking into the studio and they see Freddie and Freddie sees, he's like, oh, it's Freddie's date, mind you. And he's like, oh, Chuck Finley, Gary Grant. I'm not playing, I'm not playing. He's too nervous. Like, he's like, I'm not playing with these great players. And uh, I think it was for the Ride Like the Wind CD and uh, video and it was a studio orchestra. You guys were a part of it. Um, Maybe you could talk a little bit about um, some of your memories of, of working with Freddie and your feelings about him and influence he might have had on you. And then I understand there's a uh, he pulled a bit of a fast one on you guys that night. Uh, yeah, maybe he did. If, if you don't mind sharing <laughs> that story, I know people would love to hear it. Oh, if you don't yeah. Mind. I think if they don't know it, it's beautiful. <laughs> oh, Fred, Freddie was absolutely, oh, gosh, what can you say about Freddie? You know, I grew up listening to Freddie. I mean, when I listened, when I first heard Freddie, I, I just couldn't believe my ears. I, uh, Jesus, I remember driving in the car with a Good friend of mine, Val Kent, a drummer from Cleveland, who's one of my favorite drummers of all time. And we'd be driving, and Freddie came out, and the first time we heard him on the radio, I said, Jesus, you know, Rod Blake. I, said, I couldn't believe it. I said, Who is this guy? You know, I mean, uh, man, of course, uh, Clifford, you know, it was, was the man for me. Uh, and, and Miles, yes and no. I mean, I love Miles, but boy, when I heard Freddie, I said, Jesus, he just took it to another level altogether. And I was like, Wow, this is outrageous, you know. Yeah. And then to meet him and know him like a brother, um, that's another <laughs> another world altogether. Um, we would, oh, we did many things together, you know, uh, and uh, we'd, we'd play Dante's. I met some Dante's. We'd play together on the, up on Dante's. He'd come sit in with the sextet and we'd play and jam and groove. And Freddie was a dear, dear friend. I called him Hoops. Mm-hmm. He called me Finley. Yeah, Finley. <laughs> uh, he, uh, my wife says he has the softest lips in the, in the ever. But <laughs> he has these beautiful big lips. And we had Dante. Hey, Mrs. Finley, fearless, Mrs. Fearless, whatever. And and he was he was just a joy to be around. Mm-hmm. You know, Freddie had a lot of fun. He, uh-huh. You could tell in his playing. You know, people 
the personalities come out of the horn. And Freddie's definitely did. His his personality of of, of the that drive, that love, that energy he had uh, came out of that bell of his horn. And and his, that was his personality. He um going back to that album, that was an interesting album because Freddie wasn't afraid. Whatever you said, this guy. Oh no, no, he was just he was a, he could he was actually thrilled that we were there because he didn't sure. know what he was going to do. This was a, something out of his uh, ordinary to do something. This was a live directed disc album. That was not oh, okay. that was live, and it was on under the needle, you know. Mm. So what we did was okay, but now it was me and Gary and Freddie. Now we had all these lines together. I mean, as you well know, trumpets, you know, they could kill you on the trumpet, and that's what was happening. It didn't matter with the saxophone player so much, or even actually the trombone player, the Walters player. But we had to bust it. It was a trumpet album. So what we had to do was really hard. And uh, so I had to finally say, you know, and not for myself only, but for Freddie as well. I had to tell Alan Ferguson, Alan, I said, look, you can rehearse it all you want again. Please go right ahead with it, but we can't play. I said, Freddie and I and, and Gary, we just can't do it. I mm. said, if you want to take and you want it to be right, we got to rest. And so, uh, because I, I mean, Freddie was over the blow. I mean, it was, I mean, it was just, it was, it was killing us. Mm-hmm. The music was killing us. So I just had to say, we got to just wait for the take. So that's what happened. Mm. So we did like, um, I want to say it was three days. I'm not sure, two or three. It might have been only two, but two double sessions for an album. That was probably what it was. Mm. It was a lot of work. So anyhow, the second day, I think it was then, as I told, it was Gary's birthday. Gary Grant's birthday. So we go in and I said, Gary, I said, for, as a birthday present to you, I said, you know, I won't give you any lead at all. You don't have to play any lead at all. I'll play all the lead as a birthday present to you. <laughs> and so Gary, and that's what we did. The, you know, the, um, what's the bird line? Uh-huh. And so, and then, so now, Freddie, I said, Gary's birthday. Oh, okay, so, well, after we finish here, we'll go out and we'll have dinner after we're done. So we went to Martoni's, and I don't know if you know, Martoni's was a famous... Yes, the Rat Pack. Yeah. Great restaurant. They, they really catered to musicians. It was fantastic. So after we finished, we go to Martoni's. And we had our own little area in the back with me and Gary and Freddie. We sit down and Freddie says, a bottle of Moet Chandon. <laughs> so we get a bottle of Moet Chandon. Or was it Moet Chandon or was it the Cristal? I can't remember. It was a wonderful champagne. Um, oh, no, it was Pierre Auger. A bottle of Pierre Auger. That's what it was. A bottle of Pierre Auger. So we got a bottle of Pierre Auger there. We sit there. The port of wine and the champagne. And, hey, Gary, happy birthday, happy birthday. We're all kinds of pasta, sausage, and peppers, and just grooming. And we're drinking the champagne. But he says, another bottle. Another bottle comes. Well, we went through about four bottles or so. And Freddie says, just go to the bathroom. Let's get something to leave. He says, I'll be right back. Go to the toilet. Never came back. <laughs> he split left us with the bill. He, he ordered all the champagne and invited us out to Martoni's in the split. But that was typical Freddie. Uh, how could you not love him? I mean, you love him. I mean, but there are stories of everybody that worked with Freddie. Uh-huh. I mean, all of them. Yeah. Every one of them knows that he was wild. But And there were times when you wanted to hate him, they say. But you couldn't, you know, you just couldn't hate such a wonderful, sweet man. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that, Chuck. That's great. Um, let's shift over to the Tonight Show band. You uh, you were with the Tonight Show for for years. You were the only musician, I think, who was a part of Doc Sermonson's band with the Johnny Carson era, and then part of Branford Marcellus's band with the, the Jay Leno era. Um, can you talk a little bit about that gig, and, and in particular, what it was like working with Doc and, and hearing Johnny every night? 
Donk was great. Donk was great, and that was the end of an era with that big band, because after that, then it just, there wasn't a big band on TV. Right. Only, only maybe on like a, a telephone or something, but other than that, they, they disappeared. Um, it was wonderful. Uh, it, the nice thing about that gig was there was no contract. I had no, Jay, it was a, you signed a contract, and you basically had to be there all the time, you know. Money was better, but, uh, but you couldn't do other things. Uh, with, with Doc and with the Tonight Show with Johnny, I could still do all my sessions that I was talking about, the things that I did. I could, if I had a busy day or something other that I wanted to do, I'd do that. Mm-hmm. And then also, after you finished the show, you could go, and there was always sessions afterwards as well. So there was, I was in the studios, and then I was at NBC, and then I was you know, doing something afterwards, or going to Dante's, playing at Dante's. So it was real nice. And, and the band, I mean, come on, it was like, it was Slicker Young, Conte Condoli, myself, and Maury Harris played fourth trumpet. He was always the staple. He always, they always called him the luckiest fourth tr- trumpet player in L.A. <laughs> but Maury played the fourth book very well. You know, Sometimes I'd, you know, he'd take it up the octave and out of, loud and out of tune. I'd say, Maury, please just play it where it is. Please. <laughs> he just wanted to get off the bottom, but it was not good. So, But sitting next to Snooky and Count, my goodness. Yeah. Wow, what a lesson. I mean, that, you can't buy that. And I was fortunate in all my career to sit next to people like that. But Snooky, what a, I remember hearing him for the first time when I was in 1963 in New York. My brother was playing the Americana Hotel with the Tommy Dorsey Band. My brother flew me in. And uh, at the Metropole, back then they had big bands at the Metropole. And, and so I remember Lionel Hampton's band being there. And, and, and I was, I couldn't, I was only, was that 16? Oh, I was 16. I was 16. 1965. And I was standing there, and in the Metropole, I don't know if you knew the place or what it was like, but it was at the bar. Everybody stood up in a line. It was like Wayne Cocker and C.C. Riders. They stood up like all the way down the line. So I walk in. I just snuck in. I mean, back then, I mean, like you could, well, it's probably still like that. You just go in with a group of people. They don't check you for your idea. And I just walk right in. And I'm standing there, and I, the trouble section was uh, Dick Forrest. I was playing fourth. I don't know if you know who Dick Forrest was. Um, Jimmy Nottingham, um, Ernie Royal, and Snooky. And I walk in, and they're playing. The first, the trumpets are first. So I walk in there, the trumpets. And I got as far as Snooky, and I just stopped. I, had, I, I couldn't go any further. I just stood there, and I was just right in front of him. And I never heard anything like that in my life. Mm. I just stood there like, wow, this is just unbelievable. Mm. I mean, Snooky had the greatest, most pure, beautiful, round, gorgeous sound, and his plunges. I mean, he had the best shake. I mean, there's no nobody ever that could, has a better shake than Snooky I, that I've ever heard ever. And I mean, he was just so magical. And then for him to be a, another brother of mine, of course, like I said, Sweets was another one. I'd be sitting next to Sweets and listen to him play. Conte Condoli, my goodness, probably one of the most underrated—not underrated, but he, Jesus, the most brilliant. Talent. Every time you play a solo, I think to myself, "Why didn't I think of that?" Because <laughs> it was just so brilliant. You know? But anyhow, so that was the time. So with Doc, you know, and Doc was Doc was great. He was very, you know, whatever you wanted to do was okay. Mm. Doc was very loose as far as that. And then, then with the Jay, it was different. Bramford was fantastic. Bramford came out and got that gig. The thing is, it could have been a big band still if Bramford wanted that. It could have the big band could still be on that show right to this this day mm-hmm. if Bradford wanted a big band, mm-hmm. but he went with a smaller group, the eight piece mm-hmm. group, and then 
it was set. So they said, well, we don't need a big dam. You know, because these people, these suits and these management people, they have no idea. They don't have any clue. They don't care. Right. I mean, the money was the same amount of money for eight people as it was for the big man. So it could mm-hmm. have been the big man as well. Mm-hmm. So it could have been there. Mm-hmm. But I guess it was time. It was time for a change. And it was really nice because we got to play mainstream jazz with Banford. It was really, really nice. And then when Banford left, then uh, it changed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I won't get into that, but it changed mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. So. Um, this year, I'm shifting gears again. Uh, the Brass World lost one of its great players. And I know a very, very dear friend of yours. And I just wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about the late, great Derek Watkins a little bit and, uh, and what, what he meant to you and your relationship uh, with him uh, over the years. Well, he was marvelous, I'll tell you. He, uh, I met Derek in 1970. I had just moved here from Vegas. I was here probably a year. I was, one year. It was the summer of 1970. And Tom Jones came in and we did the Tom Jones show. Well, he brought his band, and his band was uh, Terry Jenkins on drums, Johnny... Um, uh, I can't think of his name and, uh, and Derek was the trumpet player uh, Big Jim Sullivan on guitar that was his band it's not unusual <laughs> so anyhow so Derek comes I meet him and in that band it was me the trumpets were added because Derek was the lead player with Tom it was Derek Watkins myself Rachel Scary, and Don Rader and the trumpets mm. and the trombone says it was Charlie Lover Billy Byers and, and uh, Kenny Shorey played this trombone wow it was really a nice, nice, nice brass section. But and Billy back then was Billy was still playing, of course, back then. It was beautiful. But Charlie Love was playing lead. And um, Derek, boy, he just nailed it. I never heard anything like that. Uh, it was just phenomenal. Um, probably the best. Uh, I'll tell you, he could. Once again, being, well, I mentioned before about Tony Cavanaugh to you, but about being efficient. It was just like he could play a double B like, and just like nothing, you know. Top, and you could hit that double B like it was, you know, like it was a low B, low B, or B in the staff. And, uh, you know, soft, loud, however you want it. I mean, he was that that consistent and fantastic. Uh, we hit it off immediately. He was like two years older than me, but we were both kids. Uh, ironic thing is that um, I had a green Alfa Romeo that I just bought in 1969. Derek had one green Alfa Romeo <laughs> in London. On the right side drive, uh, we—he was the Chuck Finley of, of Europe, and I was the Derek Watkins of, of Europe. Yeah. You know, of, of America, he was, and it was—I mean, we just hit it. Unbelievable how we just hit it. Like we gelled, and we became brothers instantly, mm-hmm. trumpet brothers. I mean, right off the bat, it was uh, phenomenal. Um, we lost him too early, you know. Yeah, but, uh, sure. it was, yeah, it was sixty-eight. Um, he died of. Uh, Sarcoma, uh, was a lower bowel cancer. And so, um, you know, it was tough. I was on the road and it was kind of hard. But he was, as far as a trouble player, Derek, um, Billy Byers said he was the, uh, and Billy was brilliant. Billy said he was the finest lead trumpet player he ever heard in his life. Mm. And I'd have to say he, as far as I'm concerned, he was as well. Mm. For me, my favorite would be Derek. If I wanted to hire somebody as a lead trumpet player, it would be Derek. Wow, doesn't Number get a, no higher praise than that. So, uh, yeah, he was that brilliant. Um, as we kind of wind down, Chuck, uh, when I look at your career, I, to me, it's the most prolific recording career any brass player has ever had, and I don't think I don't think it'll ever be equaled, uh, largely because of the talent level and also because of the time and the era and how much music was being recorded yeah. and how. And it's we are all grateful for you for setting the bar so high and, and doing such amazing work over your career. I don't even know if this is possible for you because it's there's so much that you've done. But if you if you had like 
half a dozen projects that, you, that stand out in your mind and say, you know what, that was one of my favorites and this was, do you have a few that you'd say, well, these are some things that I just really, really were extra special? Yeah, there are actually. Um, there was one album we did uh, with um, Al Jarreau. Uh Jay Graydon produced it. It was, it was uh, Jerry, myself, Gary, and Bill. The four of us. Oh, jeez, it was. I mean, it was. It was. It was phenomenal. It was. It really was incredible stuff that we did. Um, and when you had mentioned before, so I was pitching all that. We, we had to, we punched in so many different things. We didn't need to punch in because Jay Graydon just wanted. I mean, just wanted to do it. Uh, mm. It was. We played everything. Uh, on the right, everything on the money, all the lines, all the licks, everything we played was perfect. The pitch was perfect. Everything was fine. Uh, it was brilliant. Um, those. Those, that album, I have to say, is one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the Earth, Wind, and Fire sessions we did also, those are very memorable. Jeez. Um, oh, um, Concert for Bangladesh, you know, now we're talking about something totally different. That was, that is probably the highlight of my career. I mean, that's something that I would say that, uh, you know, goes down in history. That will always be there. Um, I played trumpet, uh, bass trombone, and flute. <laughs> And the other thing was a joy. We were in a lot of trumpets, so I was playing uh, bass trombone. Not kind of, but bass trombone, flute, and trumpet. And it was great. It was Jim Horn. And uh, the, well, was, uh, well, the concert for Bangladesh was... Well, actually, yeah, I did. No, not on that. That was on the tour. On the concert for Bangladesh, I just played trumpet. With me and Ollie Mitchell, um, Jim Horn, Jackie Kelso, Alan Beitler, a baritone player in Sacramento, who mm -hmm. lives in uh, Dallas, uh, and Lou McRae. On, on trumpet. Wow. And it was wonderful. Mm. And we went back and uh, it was 1971. I remember in New York walking down Broadway and and Jim Jim Horn, who was the, the section there, it was his he put the horn section together. Jim says, We need rock and roll shirts, is what he said. <laughs> so Jackie Kelso is like he's like the oldest hippie, you know. I was hey Jackie, you know, we'll go down Broadway, you you lead the way. So Jack, we're walking down, we're all in cowboy boots and we're walking down and, and we were having, we were having a great time because in New York and Jackie Kelso's leading the, leading the pack. He's like like a half a block ahead of us, you know. And this, this, these look good, you know. We go and we had to find these really far out looking rock and roll shirts, and so we did find them, and, and the concert was great. <laughs> and it was so, it was so, it was all, you know, for UNICEF. It was all for concert to make our country after Bangladesh, mm -hmm. which is what we did. So I mean, I mean, for something I would say, as uh, what I have done in my life for, for the people, that would be the one, mm. the concert mm -hmm. of Bangladesh. And then we did a tour with them with Robert Shankar as well. That was mm -hmm. very interesting. Because mm. uh, I learned uh, about Tihais and Indian music, and mm. it was great. And they learned Western music. So we're traveling on a plane together, and Ala Raka, the top of is singing Tihais to me. And I'm, I'm, and I'm writing uh, some licks to, to work for a Tihai, you know, 11 and a half. <laughs> You know, so it was really lovely. I mean, it just shows that the culture, the beautiful thing about music is that we have our own language and the culture is just so special. Yeah. My dad told me that when I was a little boy. He said, um, he said, son, one thing we have that nobody else has is we have our own language. Mm. You can go anywhere in the world and speak your language. That yeah. is so true. Yeah, oh, those are great words. Um, Chuck, as we finish up today, um, I always like to ask a, a player of your stature, um, when you look back and, and you, you have young folks that are coming up nowadays that dream of possibly being a, a Chuck Finley someday, um, if you had a piece of advice you'd give to a young person coming up, well, what, 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 what might that be? 
Well, I, you know, I, when I do master classes in schools and workshops, I, uh, I always tell them the times have changed, and they certainly have. But there's always room for a great player. Always. There always will be. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, but you have to, one thing you have to be, though, you have to be very versatile. I mean, if I could say, you can't just be a lead player. You can't be just a jazz player. You've got you to have more than that. You've got to listen. I would, I would listen to every kind of music there is. Everything. Listen to country music. Listen to rock and roll. Listen to, jeez, uh, listen to Dixieland. Listen to mainstream jazz. Listen to uh, old 20s, you know, listen to Big Spider Bank. Listen to, just listen. Because you can grab everything you can possibly grab from these people because you put that into your, your motor, your brain, and it's there. I mean, there are so many motors in your brain that have never been, been used that, uh, that are just waiting for you to start that engine and use it. And mm-hmm. it's all there. Mm-hmm. And, and you need to grab, excuse me, all of this and just absorb it all. Because you never know when you go in the morning. I never know if I have to, excuse me, whatever kind of solo I have to play. Is it a Dixieland solo? Or a mainstream jazz solo? Uh, a high note solo? You've got to be able to play high notes too, like Maynard. I mean, it's, uh, I don't like to. Uh, it's, I don't think too many trumpet players really do, but uh, it's, uh, it's something that you may need. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if you can be as versatile as possible, uh, I think that is the key. Uh, it's really needed. And also definitely learn, you know, <laughs> your computer. You know, learn how to, how to sample. I mean, they sample so many things, but, but it's, 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 it's available. It's always available. So mm-hmm. the young players out there, and I want you to just go for it. If that's what your dream is, if you want it, you can have whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's great advice. Well, Chuck, listen, thank you so much for spending time today and taking uh, time out of your busy schedule. And most of all, thanks for all the incredible playing and inspiration. I mean, for me personally, it's been, uh, ever since I got that article, I mean, it's, it's been like a constant. And Still got it. So, for, <laughs> so fortunate that I've gotten to work with you in here in that. So, so thank you for, for shedding a light in, on your extraordinary career and uh, everything you've done. And uh, we look forward to... Uh, Seeing what's the next chapter for Chuck Finley because it's been an amazing ride. And uh, thanks again for being here today. And we will see all of you next time on Bone to Pick. Thank you, Mike.